Hey, this is Dee Snyder. You like to make great money, right? Well, here's a really cool opportunity I'd like to share with you. It's driving with Uber. Uber is that popular smartphone app that connects riders with drivers. Have you used it? It's amazing. It really is. I take Uber a bunch. I love them. And in chatting with different drivers, some of them have really interesting stories as to why they drive with Uber. Why do I chat with them? Have you ever seen an unhappy Uber driver? I've never seen one. Okay, I've seen unhappy cab drivers. I've seen unhappy limo drivers. I've never seen an unhappy Uber driver. So I ask them, what are you smiling about? They said, hey, Uber lets me be my own boss. I earn great money. It, it was easy to start. I just needed a car and a license. And driving with Uber is great for anyone who needs flexibility. Hey, parents, this is a really easy way to work around your family's schedule. You know, pick up some extra cash. Now that now is the prime time to cash in driving with Uber. You'll thank me for telling you how to get paid every week. Hey, I could be getting into your car when you drive Uber. You never know. And I'll be asking you, what are you smiling about? You got a car and a license? Put them both to work for you and start earning serious, life-changing money today. Sign up to Drive with Uber. Visit drivewithuber.com. That's drivewithuber.com. Drivewithuber.com. Let's play. So I wake up the other day, stumble out of the bedroom in my usual pre-caffeinated fog. I am the walking dead before I have my coffee. When did that happen? When did it happen that I became so unfunctional, as in lacking in function, without my cup of coffee? I mean, it's been like that for forever. If I can't get coffee in the morning, I am just, I, I am just, forget it, I'm useless. But be, be that as it may, I, I come out, I get my coffee, I sit down, and I decide to open my computer uh, and just check for mail. Because I'm on the West Coast, I'm in Vegas, so um, I know that... A lot of my business associates have already been up for a few hours. Some of them have some needs. They, there's things that they want from me. Uh, so I figure I'll give it a quick check and see. And I have been inundated with Google alerts and emails. Not, you know, emails relating to the Google alerts. I'm like, uh-oh, what happened? Because, you know... We get Google alerts from time to time when something happens, yeah. But when a bunch of them come in, something has triggered it. And I'm going, what did I, have I done to trigger a deluge of Google alerts? Well, don't, why sit here wondering? Let's click on one, shall we? So I click on it, and there it is. Some rock website. Paul Stanley calls D. Snyder. A wannabe. Click on another one. Paul Stanley calls Twisted Sister buffoons. A bunch of buffoons. So I, I actually start laughing. I mean, so, you know, I, I click on a few of these things. And, I, you know, and I'm really, honestly, I could care less. You know, words, uh, I, I mean, it's just like, it's just, you got to look from where it comes you know, you get, words can only hurt if they come from people that you care about. And I, although I am a Kiss fan, I don't care what Paul Stanley thinks about me. If Now, mind you, if my wife was to say some of these things, my children, my parents, 
my siblings, friends of mine, that would be upsetting to me to be called those things. But from someone I have no relationship with and I really don't value their opinion and I know they don't have a high opinion of me to begin with, I just sort of chuckled. And I went on to Twitter and I saw, you know, now people are retweeting and there's a lot of Twitter action on this. And and, and all I just wrote is, ouch. You know, I wrote, ouch. And, you know, I forgot what I followed up with, but I really didn't say much more. Then the morning progresses. My phone's ringing. I'm getting more and more emails. There's more and more coverage. Apparently, this is big news. Paul Stanley calls Dee Snyder a wannabe and calls Twisted Sister a bunch of buffoons. So at some point, I go, all right, I guess I, guess I need to respond and it really, you know, when they say, you know, the mind is the greatest weapon, well, how, how do you fight an unarmed man? You know, the comments that Paul had made were uh, when he was asked about my statements about uh, Tommy Thayer and Eric Carr wearing Peter and Ace's makeup and how I felt it was insulting to the fans. And... As instead of addressing the question, and this is a tactic, by the way, people, he, he, you know, he diverted and attacked the question, the person asking the question, making the statement. So he, he threw, he threw the attention off of the question and drew attention by saying, slighting the person and disqualifying the person who asked the question. So I rebutted him in an open letter um, where I said some, uh, I, I think I rebutted very uh, intelligently. Uh, I called him on his shit. Uh, I called him on his uh, insult of the band. And I called him on his insult of me. And I challenged him to a rock off. A rock off. Um, and I said that I will bury you, son. I said, which, uh, so, um, this of course was a shot heard around the world, literally. And, 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 and the social media and Twitterverse blew up and it has been ongoing now for the better part of a week. Um, it's, it's kind of insane. Now, Paul, of course, hasn't said anything additional. He shouldn't have said anything in the first place. His best retort, when Chris Jericho, and that's Chris was the one who asked him, and by the way, Chris, um, I did notice that you were laughing when Paul said those things about me and my band. Duly noted. Um, I'll bury you too, son. Uh, and you know that. Um, anyways, where was I? <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, these things, um, get blown up and people put, and, and it blows my mind that this is what people really are interested in. They're not interested in new music from Kiss or Twisted Sister. They're not interested in, uh, you know, creativity or positivity or, uh, anything compelling or important? Paul just did a show in, at the at the um, at the uh, where did he do it at the um, in L.A. where he did like a soul review, um, and I didn't see it or anything like that. And I'm not going to criticize. It. I mean, I've, I've done he does Broadway. I, I you know uh, I applaud his you know wanting to stretch and do things and challenge himself. But I didn't see that much coverage on that in social media. I didn't see anybody going off on that. I didn't see people uh, sharing that, but if there's, you know, if there's uh, insults flying, if threats are happening, uh, if it's, you know, if that's compelling. Reality show bullshit is compelling, and I, you know, and and you know, oh, I was going to say that Paul's the perfect answer, Paul. Paul, if you know, you're not listening to this, when Jericho asked you. What I, you thought with the, about what D. Snyder said, you should have said, who? Done. 
Knockout punch. Not even acknowledge my existence. Therein, there's the big insult. But by addressing it, even call me a wannabe and the band buffoons, you are, you are opening the door for a counterattack. You know, you're opening the door, you're acknowledging us. Even if you feel like you weren't because you didn't mention me by name, you still were acknowledging our existence. So you should be so far above us, beyond us, that there isn't even acknowledgement that we exist. Okay? That was kind of like Keith Richards the other day saying uh, he said some uh, bad rapping blacks. I think it was Metallica and Black Sabbath. I could be wrong. It was I know Metallica was one of them, but he said something uh, very insulting about the bands. The fact that he knows they exist that it, it, that gives credence to the bands in the first place. He doesn't have to like it, but he's acknowledging their existence. He'd be better off not knowing they exist. I'm unaware of this music. That's more insulting. But he knows, and just like Paul knows who Twisted Sister is, and knows who Dee Snyder is. But people said, why are you, it's been going on all week. And I said, it's just been too much fun, especially when I've been doing a lot of traveling and I've had a lot of downtime. Because now the KISS Army has stepped in. Now, there may have been a time when the KISS Army was somehow threatening. There was some ominousness to the KISS Army. But knowing the KISS Army is now in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and even 70s, it's not quite the threat it once was. And as 60-year-olds go, I'm pretty much the dominant 60-year-old out there. Uh, well, Lou Frigno's up there as well, by the way, but th- that, that's another story. But, I mean, so it's, on a physical level, there's no threat. On a mental level... It's been actually hysterical because the the Kiss Army, uh, and this isn't saying every person, but they they've been saying some really stupid things, like accusing me of a, one guy whose Twitter picture was Paul Stanley, whose name was something like Paul Stanley Incarnate, and accused me of being obsessed with Paul Stanley. It's too easy. Another guy said, I'm not even on Paul on Kiss's level. I'm not on Paul's level. I can't speak because I'm not on his level. To which I responded, level of intelligence? Creativity? Generosity? Uh, Musicality? Oh, level of record sales, the true measure of a man. Please. Please, it's too easy. And then sometimes when the, the people were being particularly offensive or insulting, I just would retweet them and then feed them to the SMFs, who I want to say on the whole, that's my fans, are a lot smarter than the Kiss Army. Sorry, guys. Sorry. I'm not saying everyone. I'm not saying everyone. But there's some uh, Kiss Army representatives out there who are not the sharpest knives in the draw. And I will say some of the SMFs haven't been particularly on point either. You know, there's been some sort of slanderous retorts uh, to Paul, like, you know, about, you know, about his face or about his, his, his voice or about, you know, or about pictures of his family or so. You know, and I'm not really down with that. It's not, it really has nothing to do with the discussion. You know, to to attack a man's age or physicality or something like that. You know, I mean, because believe me, I'm, I'm wide open to those kind of attacks. So I'm not going there either. All right. Anyway, so I, you know, I so it it keeps going on. I I really want it to uh, fade away, uh, but you know, I, I got to admit, it, it's I, I every now and then I just can't resist, and I dive in and I make a comment, and woo, it starts it all up again. As Paul sits quietly by. So, um, th- you know, I'm, I'm going to take a break. Uh, when I come back, I want to talk about this being, the th- this week, the 30th anniversary of the Senate hearings, the PMRC, the Parents Music Resource Center, what that meant then, what that's meant since, what that means now, what that means moving forward. Maybe give you a little insight into what, I've, what happened that day, what happened at that time, and where I think it's it's taken us. 
So uh, stick around. Hey, this is Dee Snyder for True Car, and this is an absolutely true story. I was talking to my son, Cody, and he was expressing to me his frustration in that a car he and his girlfriend got, that they paid too much money for it. Now, mind you, they got this car two years ago. I said this to you before, right, that it just haunts you knowing that you paid too much money for the car. And he told me a whole story about how they went in there and they thought they were being so smart and they thought it was so together with the salesman and they thought that they were they were stealing the car from the salesman when they were being worked over. Salesmen are pros, man. They're pros. They they made him buy a car he didn't want to buy for a price he didn't want to pay. And two years later, is still he was still talking to me about it. He's still angry about it and pissed off about it. And that's why True Car is so awesome. You know, finding clarity on car pricing is difficult. You could be paying thousands more than your neighbor for the same car. I tell Cody, True Car, man. Next time, use True Car. How do you really know what's fair? It's good to do your research when buying a car, but there's really only one place to get the most comprehensive car pricing information available. And the truth is, car prices can vary even within your area. So when you know the car you want and you're ready to buy, there's only one place to go, True Car and the True Car app. No headache, no hassles, no regrets. Just the car you want at a price you could feel good about. Two years ago, was there a True Car? I don't know. But if there was, I shouldn't tell my son if there was because he'll be kicking himself that he didn't know about it. You can now go online to find the fair price on a new car via True Car. Now with True Car, you can see what others in your area have paid for the exact same car you're looking for, which helps you determine a fair price. Then you get a guaranteed savings certificate from a True Car certified dealer. Your savings will be honored by a True Car certified dealer, not a hustler. There's no need to negotiate. You're not going to get played. You're not going to lay awake at night thinking about how you were ripped off. True Car users save an average of $3,221. That's the average. That means some are lower, some are higher. That's off of MSRP. No hassles or headaches. It's how car buying was always meant to be. Over 2 million cars have been sold by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. There are over 10,000 dealers in the True Car Certified Dealer Network, so there's got to be one accessible by you. You work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer contact. Not a hustler, not a salesman. You already know the price when you get in there. You got the price through True Car. Visit TrueCar.com or download the TrueCar app and start saving today. TrueCar, never overpay. All right, DraftKings number one. DraftKings Ultimate Fantasy Podcast. Hey, it's John Kincaid. Have you checked out the DraftKings Ultimate Fantasy Podcast yet? Some fantasy insights from some of the best insiders from DraftKings. Also, too, we've got the best celebrity guests stopping on by to share their love of fantasy and maybe an insight or two. It's a must-listen every single Thursday at PodcastOne.com. That's PodcastOne.com. Welcome back to Snyder Comments. Of course, I'm Dee Snyder. Uh, I hope you're enjoying this weekly. I don't know what it is. I've been trying to figure out exactly what I'm doing, but I'm kind of having fun doing what I'm doing, going where I'm going. If I feel an interview, I do the interview. If I have something to share, I share it. Um, And uh, I don't really know. I mean, I guess I could find out what kind of listenership I've got or whatever. But, uh, you know, uh, I'm hoping that overall – there's an entertainment value and a likability to what I do. Uh, so let's get to let's get down to it. On September 19th, 1985, the Senate subcommittee, uh, I don't know if their official title, but they're basically uh, were, were examining the uh, idea of rating rock records and uh, the censoring of rock records, had a hearing in Washington, D.C., Now, this hearing was at the behest of an organization called the PMRC, Parents Music Resource Center, 
which was headed up by some people, uh, in particular Tipper Gore, wife of Al Gore, a Democrat, and Susan Brown, the wife of, now I'm forgetting which Brown and what he exactly was, but he was another politician, and um, a Republican. So contrary to some people's belief that this was a Democrat witch hunt, no, no, it was a bipartisan witch hunt. Uh, Senator Danforth, who is the committee chair, he was Republican. Um, I think Senator Rockefeller was Democrat. They were all over the boards up there. On the up there, uh, uh, so it was definitely a bipartisan thing. But backing it up a little bit, you know, you got to go to the time. This is the Reagan era. This is uh, the mid '80s, uh, the decade of decadence. You know what I mean? Um, and conservatives are in control. Reagan was a conservative and uh and and I've historically have noticed when conservatives are controlling uh the the more liberal factions, particularly the youth, tend to act up. And you'll see uh you'll see a lot you'll see you know kind of a lot more what's the word I'm looking for, but uh uh definitely um some uh, liberal activity. I don't liberal, not politically, just in actions, you know, pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. It seems like it's almost like the young people want to push the buttons of the conservative powers just to get them to react and react. They did. Uh, Tipper Gore, uh, having was listening to uh, the story is she was listening to Purple Rain, uh, the song Darling Nikki with her children dancing and singing and enjoying it, her young daughters, and realized the song was about masturbation with a magazine. That Nikki would roll up a magazine and masturbate with it. Uh, this mortified Tipper Gore, who apparently had never masturbated, and, uh, liar! And um, she uh, uh, contacted some friends, and they decided that something needed to be done. And in uh, in '84, and I can't, you know, my dates might not be exact, but this is when I became aware of it. The Parents Music Resource Center started um, drawing attention and getting media attention uh, from the fact of exposing the true content, the true meaning of the records that were out there, popular music, and the disgusting, disgraceful lyrical content that was secret, that was being hidden from children and hidden from the parents. And they wanted to start a rating system that would put letters on them, um, not like PG, G, PG-13, M, remember M for mature, X for X-rated, R, you know, restricted. No, they wanted O for occult, like V for violence, S for sex, uh, B for bestiality. They wanted like actual literal, uh, uh, like a, you know, like a sort of a chart that would tell you what the song had. I could see some songs having a whole bunch of those ratings on one song. But be that as it may, um, they started their little uh, hissy fit and it got attention, a lot of attention. And I remember being on the road, hearing more and more how the PMRC was raising holy hell uh, and wanting to get record rated to protect their children. This was their purpose in life. We must protect the children. Or should we say that the government needs to protect the children? We, Twisted Sister on the Road, dealt with all kinds of um, censorship issues. I was arrested for profanity. It got to a point in Amarillo, Texas, uh, and, and disorderly and abusive language and profanity uh, got to the point where we had to make an announcement before our shows to warn people that we cursed to protect ourselves. We had shows banned. We had shows protested by religious groups who didn't understand what we were about. I remember one particular group down south was w- walking around the arena, the Coliseum, chanting the, the words that apparently brought down the walls of Jericho. In biblical times, and or and wherever that the Bible or the test Old Testament, whatever it is, but anyway, caused the walls of Jericho to collapse on the sinners and kill everybody. 
And they were hoping that, that chanting these words, they would make the arena collapse on Twisted Sister. When my guitar player asked them, um, asked one of them, uh, what about the 12,000 innocent children inside, you know, uh, teenagers in the building who will be killed as well? Uh, do you want to kill them? This really confused the um, this person in the religious group uh, who ultimately, when she realized she was being stymied by this question, turned and said, Satan's word, Satan's word is working through your mouth, J.J. French. He is, he is trying to confuse me. No, Satan's not trying to confuse you, honey. He, J.J. was making a point. He was making a very valid point. Got to think about what our actions uh, you know, can, can bring about. But be that as it may. After Twisted Sister wrapped its tour up, and in, in, in now it's March of 85, we're in the studio, we're working on a new record, we're recovering from the touring, and uh, the, the PMRC, PMRC thing's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. By the late summer, it was announced that there was going to be a Senate hearing, that a subcommittee was formed, and there would be a Senate hearing. And I was asked if I would go and speak on behalf of rock and roll. Um, I think I was asked, I don't, and people always say, who asked you? I don't remember. I came to my management office. I never asked them. I, they, I guess because I was very recognizable, definitely, you know, I had, uh, had heavy metal mania on the air, which definitely was one of the most recognizable faces in rock and roll, in metal at that time. My song was on the Filthy 15, and they assumed by looking at me, I'd be Easy pickings. I'd be uh, they just just take me apart and humiliate and embarrass me. But they brought me in and asked me if I would speak. I jumped at the opportunity because I assumed this would be something everybody would rally up against. Rally up against. Everybody would be against. Everybody would you know that I'd grab the flag, charge in the barrel, lead the lead the the the, the army of rock fans, indignant who were indignant by this, by these accusations, indignant by this request for rating records, and, and recognize what this was. Censorship. First Amendment. Not the second, not the third, not the fourth. This was the First Amendment. This was the first thing our forefathers wrote down. Freedom of speech. Before anything else, and I guess with good reason, since they were speaking freely and they wanted to make sure that was. But I mean, it, it was that important. And I was like, absolutely, I will go. I'll, I'll, I'm there. So my tour manager and dear friend Joe Gerber and I, uh, we worked on my speech because I was. I'm not an idiot. I am clean and sober. And, uh, and you know, I, I'm not a fool. And we researched, studied, wrote, rewrote, polished, rehearsed, um, practiced, you like possible, because we knew that after I read my speech, there would be questions and answers. And we, we, you know, like, like you see, like rehearsing for going to court. Joe would like pretend he was the senators and he'd come up with all the questions. You know, like he'd ask me questions and, and fire them off so I could practice my responses. This is what you do. This is what an intelligent person does. This is what a rational person does. I was walking into the lion's den. I was a rocker walking in to, into Washington, D.C. to face off with a bunch of senators and their wives. And, you know, I was, it was a, an away game. And I was the only man on my team. Well, Joe Gerber was there with me by my side. If you see um, the video and you look at me, the guy who's sitting to my left in there, that's Joe Gerber. And uh, he really deserves a lot of um, respect and appreciation for the work he did and the help he gave me. Uh, very smart guy. Uh, we worked very closely to make sure that I was ready. He was kind of like my Mickey to Rocky. You know, hey, D, get in there. Get in there. You know, he, he had me chasing chickens. I was chasing chickens, you know, with my, with my, trying to catch the damn chicken with my like legs tied together or whatever Rocky did. The, the equivalent thereof. So I was ready. The day of the Senate hearing was September 19th. That was my son's third birthday. 
I value family above all else. But I still took the time to fly down to Washington. I actually went with my father, who is a Korean War vet, a cop. Uh, he came with me. Um, and I went down there, and Joe Gerber, of course. Marty Kallner, who spoke with uh, last week on my uh, Snyder comments, he went down with his wife. He was there. Mark Weiss, rock photographer Mark Weiss, was there shooting away, capturing the whole event. But I, I took the day... Uh, and I immediately went home afterwards to see my son for his birthday. But I, because it was it was important, it was it I, it was worth giving up part of my son's birthday to go down there and represent myself, my band, and rock and roll through my through my speech. Driving from the hotel to the Senate, whatever that is, wherever we had we had the thing. Uh, it was unbelievable. Looking out the window, I had never been in a maelstrom of media, the center of a media typhoon. I don't know. I'm trying to find the right words. But just it was just satellite trucks everywhere. Press from all over the world were there. This was a worldwide story, an international story. And then there was the protesters on either side of the cause. There was rockers there fight against censorship, and there was were plenty of people there pro censorship. And I'm driving down, and the and the anger and the hostility on both sides, and uh, it was just very intense. And that was really like sort of a whoa moment. You're like, wow. I sort of realized this was important, but I didn't realize how significant this event was. Being brought into the Senate. What is it? What is it? I, uh, whatever that building is. <laughs> Being brought in there, um, I was brought, I keep saying backstage, but it was really somebody's office, to wait. While I was back there, I knew there were, were um, three people, three musicians, three, well, I'm not a musician, I'm a singer, as my father-in-law likes to say. But still, three people from the music side who were there to speak on behalf of music. Me, Frank Zappa, and John Denver. Now, Frank Zappa is a legend, a brilliant mind, clean, sober, uh, you know, a musician's musician, and you know, and and uh, a true intellect. He was there, um, and he wasn't on the Philly Fifteen. And John Denver, who at that time. And by the way, these two guys have passed away now. At that time, was very much America's sweetheart. I mean, at this point, he had hit records. He had hit movies. He had an annual holiday Christmas show. Uh, he was beloved. And Frank, who was the only person I got a chance to talk to, uh, spend a little time with back in the, in the back area, he and I were very concerned about John because we didn't know what he would do. Um, we, 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 we knew that he, what he should do. But we didn't know, you know, sometimes people forget their humble beginnings. And when they have the success and they have the acceptance, they, they, no lo- they, don't, they sort of conveniently forget where they came from. But when John went out there and spoke, he was, he was spot on. You know, he, he did not forget at all. And he spoke out against censorship and he stood up for freedom of speech beautifully. And I say that his testimony was more damaging than Frank's or mine, quite honestly, because, because of his, the regard they held him. And because if, you know, he wasn't just a dirtbag rocker. He was just, you know, squeaky, appeared to be squeaky clean. By the way, John Denver turns out to be wilder than any of us. Turns out when John Denver died, he was like a raging alcoholic and, you know, and a lunatic. You know, I mean, gone after like, you know, his wife's furniture with a chainsaw. And, you know, I mean, he was like more of a rocker than Frank Zappa and I will ever be. But speaking, he was eloquent. He was well-informed. And when he said the words, I liken, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, I liken what's going on here to the Nazi book burnings. Boy, you should see those senators running. Who wants to be associated with the Nazis by John Denver? But John Denver remembered when Rocky Mountain High was banned for being a drug song, which it was not. 
And he remembered when Oh God, the movie, he had a couple of Oh God movies with George Burns. Um, they were being picketed for being sacrilegious, for using the word God in the title in what they considered to be a derogatory way. And it was, it was a, a very, those are old movies. They were, they were fun, family-friendly movies. There was nothing wrong with those movies. So he remembered, and he stood tall. And my one regret with all that is that I never got to shake his hand and say thank you. Never met John and never had a chance to thank him. Uh, meanwhile, back in the uh, back area, my, um, um, Frank bought, brought Dweezil and Moon Unit back. Who are little? T- he said, D, can Dweezil and Moon Unit meet you? Uh, they, and they were like, you know, um, I don't, I don't know how old they were back then, but they were young. They were little, and um, they were fans. So that was kind of cool to have. And Frank, I'm definitely a mother's fan, a fan of Frank Zappa, to have his children be fans of mine. And then a very, a, a very kind of cute. It's actually a cute moment. Frank is going out to testify, and he asked my father. He says, Bob, could you watch Dweezil and Moon Unit for me while, I, uh, while I'm testifying? And my father says, sure, Frank, I'm happy to. You know, my dad, you know, he's sitting there. In the, in the, if you, ever, you can see pictures, Dweezil and Moon Unit are sitting with my father, Bob Snyder. And to this day, he talks about it. But it's, 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 it is, yeah, and that uh, Frank Zipper guy, he uh, asked me to watch the, uh, the Moon Dweezil unit. And I like that. It's Zappa, Frank Zappa, and it's Moon Unit and Dweezil. Yeah, Zoom, Zoom unit and, and Weasel. You know, so anyway, I was very proud of the fact that, that he had uh, babysitting duty for Frank Zappa's kids. Um, I walked in there tall. I walked in there proud. I look at that footage, which is on YouTube, and I, I blow myself away. And no, no, not that I'm overly impressed. I blow myself away with the cockiness and confidence of this 20-something-year-old dude. Oh, my God. Wh- who died and made me king? I thought... My shit literally didn't stink. And walking in there, everybody's dressed in tuxedos. I didn't think for a sec tuxedos, suits. I didn't think for a second of wearing that. I went in with my skin tight, my, my Johnson-hugging jeans, snakeskin boots, cut-off T-shirt, cut-off denim vest, Twisted Sister colors. My hair just poofed out, like scraping the walls. I even put mascara on. Before I went in there, because that's how I that's how I rolled. I wasn't getting dressed up for those people. They wanted to hear from me. They would hear from me, and I didn't have any briefcase. I had my speech that I worked very hard on folded up in my back pocket, like I was a bad kid bringing his homework to class. And I went in there, and I rolled in there, and I sat down, and I looked up, and for the briefest of moments. Fear set in. I'll tell you that truthfully. Uh, for and, and it lasted all for about 15 seconds. It was time for me to speak. And I looked up and you have to understand, I'm old. I was born in the 50s. And in the 50s and 60s, we grew up viewing government. At, at like Washington, D.C. was like Oz. You know, and it's like the people there were great people doing great things and they were smarter than us and they were better than us. And, you know, and this is how we viewed the, and this is how we were raised. And yeah, we had lived through Watergate and that was a major, you know, chink in the armor, as they say, chink in the armor, Chuck. Um, it was, it was a major chink in the armor, but it's still, most of me still thought that Washington contained greatness so when I looked up at these people and I realized I was about to talk to and the names there like Rockefeller and Gore, you know, and Danforth and these names, I'm like, I'm like, I had a, a moment of like nerves. My hands started shaking and, uh, you know, and, and, I'm, and I, and the voice inside my head said, get it together, man, pull your shit together now. And I got over it. I, I, I and I, I, grab myself by the collar and I, you know, but I did have a moment of being, I'm being totally honest, you know? And, uh, and I started reading my speech and 
I'm not going to read my speech again. If you you can see it, it's fairly legendary. Um, I first thing I said, I did not represent anybody but myself. But I hope that through representing, speaking, and showing how they had misjudged me, why this was an onus thing to do, and there was a problem with what this is. There's an inherent problem to censorship and rating records. Who sits in judgment? Who will judge? Who who was in the position to judge? Clearly, not the Washington wives. They thought that you know where I could take it was about was a violent song because they watched the video. They thought under the blade was about sadomasochism and bondage because they have dirty minds. These women. I, I wrote that song for Eddie Ojeda. He was getting a throat operation. He was scared. I said, "I'm gonna write you a song," and I wrote "Under the Blade." And actually, the truth is, the first verse is about. Um, being jumped in an alleyway. You're cornered in an alleyway. You know you're all alone. Okay, so it, it was you know. Then second verse was about being on an operating table, and the third verse was about a um, not a literal blade. It was about music being the blade. You know, you're at the concert and you're in, in these gigantic speak. You know, and uh, the monster stands before you now. His mouth is open wide. I'm talking about the speaker system. You know, it was metaphoric, of course. Not literal, but at the same time, there was nothing about sadomasochism and bondage. Tipper Gore has a dirty mind, which is probably a great thing for Al. This said, I went in there, I represented myself. Um, then came the Q&A, and that went beautifully as well. Uh, they asked all the questions we knew they would ask, and I got the opportunity to say things that I wanted to say, make more statements I wanted to say to to counter certain things that they were saying. And I got a chance to, to give the uh, the hair flip heard round the world when Al Gore asked me after I said that um, that you know uh, that I was born and raised a Christian, I still adhere to those beliefs. And then he asked the name of the fan club, and I said, "Sick motherfuckers." Uh, he asked me if that was a Christian group, and I said, uh, Senator, I don't believe profanity and Christianity have anything to do with each other, and I tossed my hair in disgust. In disgust! Uh, that's probably one of the most famous <laughs> parts of clips on there. Um, so, you know, I, I had a chance to—and uh, to, uh, by the way, we knew we were going to say sick motherfucker. Uh, we knew that they would want— they, they would do enough research to find out the fan club was called the SMF Friends of Twisted Sister, and they would ask what SMF stood for, and there was no way dancing around it. So, you know, we decided, me and Joe Gerber said, hey, let's just, you know, give them that one. Yep, center, sick motherfuckers. So I got to say that at a Senate subcommittee, which I don't think has been said too often. I felt, on one hand, I walked out of there, I felt great. Because I knew I'd kick the ass. But at the same time, when a reporter, and they were everywhere, shoved the microphone in my face right when I was walking out and said, D, how you feeling? Without even thinking the word, I said, dirty. First word that came out of my mouth was dirty. I didn't even know why, but I realized afterwards it was because here I was, this kid who was raised thinking that. Washington was a special place with special people doing special things. And after sitting in front of these people, and don't take this as anti-patriotic or anti-American, I am anything but. But the reality that these people are not better, many of them aren't even nearly as good. They're not smarter. Many aren't nearly as smart. And they're not watching out for our best interests They've got their own agendas, their own constituency, their own motives. And it's not the greater good. I'm, now, there are some, I'm sure, I'm, I can name some, they're probably the least successful uh, politicians in history. But there or have been, there have been some, there have been many. But unfortunately, many who have ruled, who have done the most damage, have not been watching out for the greater good. And this was a huge disappointment to me. So I went home. I went home for my son's birthday, got there in the afternoon. I was feeling damn good. Uh, it was party time. My son was three. I only had one son at that time. Turned on the TV to find yellow journalism being practiced, practiced at its ultimate. 
Yellow journalism is where the, the facts are manipulated to create the impression the media outlet wants. We see it on, we see it all over the place. We see it with liberal uh, media outlets and conservative media outlets. They share and portray things as they want it to be seen. They have their agendas too. They don't have the greater good in mind either. They have their constituencies' interests at heart, not the majority of the people. So this said, I come home and I watch. I gave a stellar performance. I handled myself pretty perfectly. I worked really hard. And I, I, I say that. It's not to pat myself on the back. It's to say the point that I worked really, it was important to me to do with this good, not just for me, but for rock and roll, for everybody. I knew that I was being judged, that rock was being judged by me, and I wanted to do well. Some people didn't do equally as well. Frank Zappa made some mistakes. Frank was brilliant. People go, don't get me wrong, brilliant. But when you're having a, an argument or a discourse or a, you know, a, a conversation, one thing you should not do, and I said this uh, when I was talking earlier about some fans um, slighting Paul Stanley for things that are not within his control. Um, and, you know, to mock a person's physicality or to mock, you know, something that's not, that, that again, not isn't in their control, isn't cool. And Frank, at one point during his speech, started doing voice impersonations of the Washington wives. And they were Southern. So he was doing, well, I can't declare. He was doing like a real, uh, a real, uh, you know, like a stereotypical Southern bell. It wasn't their voices. It was a mock. He was mocking them. And that's, that's their accent. You know, it's really, I remember watching back there going, ah, oh, Frank, not cool. And sure enough, one of the senators, I can't remember which one, used it as a real opportunity to, to, to lay into Frank and say that he it was disgusting how he behaved and, you know, you know, and it was it gave them an opening. You can't give them an opening because they will take it a great distance, and they did. When I got home, I turned on Channel Seven, ABC, Channel Seven in my area, and um, to see them take a picture, take the senators dressing down of Frank Zappa, and connect it to a picture of me. So when he was saying, sir, I forgot what he said, but he said, sir, you don't have the, you know, the, the decency or the dignity. And he, he, really, he really said something very, ter- very nasty to Frank. Because Frank was so normal looking, they said, hey, it's more effective. Let's put it, attach it to D. Snyder. So I was looking like I had been put in my place, which I had not been. If anything. They they threw in the towel. They threw the the white flag of surrender when I was speaking. They could not. Besides, those name my fan club. They couldn't find a hole in anything I said or did. So, but beyond that, the daily papers didn't represent the truth. And I was like, either they represented it as a draw, a tie between the rockers at best, or. It was, we got our asses handed to us. And it was, we had done damage. Frank, John, with the exception of Frank's faux pas there, Frank, John, Denver, myself, we had done damage. We had put them in their place. We had shown them that they were wrong. Yet the daily papers, to a man and woman, did not represent that. And then it dawned on me, why would they? These are the people who, in the press conferences, get called on by name by the presidents and senators. Bob, Jimmy, Susie, you've seen it. They see them every day. They live in Washington. They want to have access. They want to be called on by name. And they know to be on the outside, it means their job. If If they don't have these relationships with the senators and the presidents and the congressmen, they don't have, they're out, they're out on their ass. So these people are the last thing they're going to do is say that some dirtbag named D. Snyder went in there and made them look like fools. 
Three months later, when the when the monthlies came out, uh, the magazines, they all represented what really happened. But the damage was already done. Publicly, people thought we had lost. Unless you had watched it. And that was another thing. The apathy of the fans. Let me take a break. I'll come back and we'll get into this. Hey, this is Dee Snyder for DraftKings. How much fun are people having with these fantasy teams? It's crazy. I mean, everybody's doing it. You see TV shows on it. I mean, why are they all doing it? Because they're having a ball. Well, your season-long fantasy football team may be going strong, but you don't have to wait until week 16 to get paid. Put your fantasy skills to test every week this season at DraftKings.com, America's favorite one-week fantasy football site. One-week fantasy means no season-long commitments. Got an injured player? Ain't no problem. It's like a new season every week, so you're never stuck with the same lame players. And get this, DraftKings is crowning a new millionaire every week this season. Every week, someone gets a million bucks. You could turn your love of football into a life-changing payday. Just pick your players, pile up the prints, and pick up your cash. That's it. Believe me, you've never experienced football like this. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. Now hurry to DraftKings.com now and use promo code SNIDER, S-N-I-D-E-R, please, to play for free for a shot at $1 million in this week's Millionaire Maker event. Go enter Snyder. It helps my show out. Obviously, it does. S-N-I-D-E-R for free entry now. Only at DraftKings.com. DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. I am back. So I was saying this was another thing. I thought that I was leading the charge with going to Washington. The majority of rock bands laid low, kept their mouths shut, let just let it try to let it blow over. The mo- the majority of rock fans didn't get it. They didn't get the significance. They didn't get the importance. They were teenagers. Maybe it was too much to expect them to. The most popular phrase was, "Now we know which record to buy." Yeah. Well, I'll get into that in a second. Yeah, it's good to know which record to buy if they have the record for you to buy. That was the problem with rating the records. That was the problem. So we had the apathy of the fans. We had the other bands, the majority of bands, just like Prince, Madonna. You didn't hear them saying anything. Motley Crue, nobody said a word. It was like, shh, let it blow over, and we get back to doing what we do. I was the only idiot who got out there and spoke. Alice Cooper said to me, D, why'd you do that? I said, because I thought it was the right thing. He goes, big mistake. Don't go in there and defend yourself against those kind of accusations. If you, if you do anything, go in there and say, they're all true. I throw myself at the mercy of the court. I said, but they're not true. He says, who cares? Because Alice knows things like, you know, killing a chicken on stage is, is a career. Ozzy knows biting the head off a bat is a career. Stupid D. Snyder thinks I'm going to explain everything to these people. No one wants to hear the truth. No one cares. So the fa- so the rock bands, beyond that, some of the rock bands were outspoken against me. Ronnie James Dio, who subsequently apologized for this publicly, he said, who the hell is D. Snyder to speak on my behalf? My first line was, I cannot speak on behalf of anybody but myself. I knew that. He hadn't even listened to what I said and went out and was trashing me for speaking on their on rock and roll's behalf. Now, I don't want to say that what happened, oh, what happened that day was responsible for the demise of Twisted Sister, but it didn't help. MTV wound up throwing the Be Cruel to Your School video to the wolves, using it as an example. They said, it's too grotesque for MTV. It was about zombies. This is after the Thriller video. When we said, well, we'll edit it, they said, there's no possible edit you could make that would make this acceptable to MTV. 
No possible edit? What if we cut out the entire video? That would be acceptable, wouldn't it? No. It was just, they won't say, hey, look, everybody, that bad band Twisted Sister that the fans knew was one of the least objectionable, but parents thought we were the poster children for everything wrong with rock and roll. Look, we're banning their video. See, we're doing something. We're MTV. We care. My ass. So I got the bands staying out of it or turning on me. I got the fans apathetic, and many were turned off by my honesty. I had always been open that I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. I was married. I had a kid. I was a Christian. Not like holy roller kind. I mean, I was raised a Christian. I believe I, I adhere to those beliefs. I still do. Do I go to church every Sunday? No. But I, I adhere to the Christian beliefs. But hearing me, that they, the, the, young, the rockers heard me on a mass scale. They, they heard, and they were disappointed. And I realized then, here I thought rock and roll was all about having it your way. Rock and roll was the Burger King of music. You know, you could be the person you want. You didn't have to follow the rules. It was all about rejecting the rules, rejecting the standards, rejecting, you know, how people expected you to be. And suddenly, I realized I was on the outs. I was on the outside because I wasn't a lifestyler. I wasn't getting drunk and killing people in cars. I wasn't taking, I was performing my ass off on stage, delivering the show of their lives every night. I didn't have anything left to give after a show. But that wasn't enough. They'd rather see a fall down fuck up, and they, meaning the rock fans, than someone who's got their shit together. So I was being rejected by the fans. And then the, and then my phones are tapped. My packages are being inspected. My mail's being inspected. I'm public enemy number one. And I'm by myself. I thought I was carrying the flag at the battle. I'm standing in the middle of the battlefield with my dick in my hand. Very disheartening. Very dischanting. Disenchanting. Very disappointing. And it hurt. I won't say it didn't hurt. And then what happens? Everything that I thought I feared would happen and more. I feared it wasn't about informing parents. It was that conservatives, people who didn't like rock, would use the sticker. Oh, uh, by the way, I forgot. The record industry agreed to a sticker, the warning parental advisory, before we even testified, before the hearings. We walked in and found out a sticker was already a done deal. So we're like, why am I here? Why are we, what are we talking about if you've already agreed, RIAA? And Frank Zappi used to always say it was something to do with a blank tape tax, which I really don't know about, but was apparently something going on behind the scenes. Again, some backroom negotiations. They agreed, well, we're not going to do the V for violence, O for occult, S for sex, but we'll give you a general sticker. Talk about feeling abandoned. So then what do I watch? I watch stores segregating the records with stickers. You know, we'll know which records to buy. Yeah, well, those records are in a separate section. Then other stores wouldn't carry those records. So you know which records to buy, but you can't buy them. The The one I didn't expect was when stores like Best Buy and Walmart forced record companies to make alternate edited versions of records unbeknownst to the public, unlabeled. Only difference was that on the serial number, one had an A at the end of the number, the other had a B. So Walmart says, if we won't carry your records unless you edit, remove songs we find objectionable or edit things we find objectionable. How do I know this? I wouldn't even know it if it wasn't for the Strangeland soundtrack. Strangeland soundtrack had a song by Kid Rock called Fuck Off on it. It had, and it had uh, a song by Nashville Pussy called I'm a Man, which uh, has I'm a real motherfucker, was a, a line in the song. Those 
songs, those t- uh, fuck off is removed from the Strange Land soundtrack, and the words were flipped. And I, I only f- Nashville Pussy was livid. You know, when they flip the word, it sounds like it's when it goes by uh, for the motherfucker word on I'm the man. That's how I found out about this. So I said, wait a minute. You mean I'm walking into adults are walking into these stores, picking up an album by an artist, a grown people, mature adults, not the audience that people were so concerned about. And they're and they're buying product that's been censored on their behalf. Unbeknownst to them. So go and see. Does your kid rock album, you know, the one with ball with the ball and cowboy song, well, does it have fuck off on it? Great track, by the way. Eminem is on, does the last verse on that track before Eminem was, was Eminem. This is before, okay, great track. Is it on there? Because if it's not, someone decided that you weren't old enough, smart enough, whatever. You shouldn't hear those songs. This is terrible. This is unexpected. And by the way, that extended into the video rental industry. It still does. There are people out there who make edits of movies. So you got a director and an editor who spend a lot of time making the perfect edit. And I know from doing my own movie, just and I see my son's movies, how much goes into the edit. And then some ham-fisted piece of shit comes in and says, yeah, I'm removing that scene. I'm removing that scene. My personal experience, blockbuster. I want to see Reservoir Dogs. Heard so much about it. Particularly heard about this scene with the ear being cut off. I watched the whole movie. There's no ear being cut off. It's cut off, but you don't see it. And it wasn't graphic. There was nothing there. I said to my friends, what ear? They go, the ear. They cut the ear off. No, there's no ear. Found out Blockbuster was editing the movies. I'm a grown man. And I have that Blockbuster telling me what I can and cannot see? Hell no. This was the aftermath. You you know, records are gone for the most part. We still see warnings on iTunes and stuff like that. Although, it, I mean, I don't know how they stop people from getting content anymore. Uh, I'm sure there are websites that won't, won't carry those records and stuff like that. It's, we've got to fight for our constitutional rights. We've got to stand up for what our forefathers knew was important. And you know what? Were they smarter than us? They were. These guys just sat around and philosophized. They sat around talking and writing letters and discussing and exploring and, and these ideas and they this is and studying there was no video games. There was no television. There was no distractions. They just sat around and, and just talked and, and thought, and, and especially these brilliant minds. You look at the, the, the rules that they set up hundreds of years ago in, in, in anticipation of what was to come. And maybe they're not perfect, but damn, they're close. They're close. And this is the real lesson to learn from all this. People got it to got to watch out when these rights are being impinged, when when people are trying to encroach on these rights. And this is why on all sides, liberal, conservative, all sides, people fight so hard for their rights because they know that the other side, if you allow them an inch, they will take a mile. And they say, oh, well, we just want to, you know, just limit certain things. Just like we just want a sticker so mom and dad can know that for little Janie and Joey with the good record. No, that's not the problem. Do your own babysitting. You don't need the government to babysit for you. We don't need the government to babysit for us. Be responsible for your own. Know the difference between right and wrong. Make the right judgments. Don't be a dick. That should be the overall rule, I find. Don't be a dick. There should just be that. That should just be. You know, don't tread on me. There should be another flag. Don't be a dick flag. If people just said, you know what, 
you're acting like a dick. Or I'm acting like a dick, I'm going to stop acting like a dick. If people just check themselves say, all right, I'm really acting like way, I'm like a big dick right now, so I'm just going to stop being a dick. Life would be so much better if people could recognize when they're being a dick and control themselves for being a dick. Life would be, well, how did it wind up here? But life would be so much better. Be that as it may. So that's the lesson to be learned. We've got to be on our guard. We've got to be stringent. We've got to be strident. We've got to, don't be apathetic. Don't be fooled. Don't fall for the bullshit. And don't think that there are people out there who know better and who are watching out for you. Of course, they're not. They're watching out for themselves. You need to step up and represent for yourself. Bottom line. Talk to you next time. Oh, by the way, at Snyder Comments on Twitter, SnyderComments at gmail.com on email. Okay? Have a great week, everybody. See you next time. Stay tuned for the latest AP News headlines from Podcast One right after this. When shopping for car insurance, consider this. GEICO has been saving people money on car insurance for over 75 years. So if you're serious about savings, it's simple. Go to GEICO.com. After 75 years, they know how to save you money. AP Update. I'm Sandy Kozell. Polls are opening across New Hampshire for the nation's first presidential primary. And that means it's time for Granite State undecided voters to make a choice, as we hear from the AP's Jerry Bodlander. Voters here in New Hampshire are known for waiting until the last minute before deciding who they're pulling the lever for or changing their minds about who they're supporting. Gloria Fields is choosing between Donald Trump and Jeb Bush. Trump because of his business ability. Bush because of what he has done in Florida. Field says she may not decide who she's supporting until she's in the voting booth. All this uncertainty makes polling more difficult, and on top of that, independent voters can vote in either the Republican or Democratic primary. Jerry Bodlander, Manchester, New Hampshire. Polls show Clinton trailing Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. She started her day at 7 a.m. at a Manchester polling location. AP Update, I'm Sandy Kozell.